Welcome to the Wild and Free Podcast, Episode 48. I'm Ainsley Arment, and this week, Cindy Rollins, the author of Mere Motherhood, shares about filling our own mama's souls and trusting the outcome of our homeschooling efforts. We'll also provide an update on our Grow the Village campaign to buy a staff house at the Wild and Free Farm Village. So grab a cup of coffee and join us on the front porch. Let's get started. In just a few minutes, we'll hear a heart-filling conversation with our dear friend Cindy Rollins. But first, we have an exciting update to share about our Grow the Village campaign. As you may know, we've set out to raise $33,000 to purchase a staff house for the Wild and Free Farm Village. So far, we've raised $14,000. That's nearly half of our goal in just one week. Now we have just 23 days to raise the rest. To make it easier, we've provided some amazing giving perks as a way to say thank you for your generosity. These include sweatshirts, books, conference tickets, and exclusive podcasts. But one of our favorite perks is called the Content Bundle Collector. For a contribution of $500, we'll give you every single wild and free content bundle we've ever created. That's 60 content bundles at a value of nearly $2,000. It includes the entire history of wild and free content bundles, so you can enjoy hundreds of podcasts, tutorials, articles, stories, and special features in your own personal library. This is the only time we've ever done anything like this, and it will probably be the last. So to take advantage of this limited time offer, click on our Indiegogo campaign and select the content bundle perk at bewildandfree.org slash farm village. Cindy Rollins is the author of Mere Motherhood and a handbook for morning time. As a veteran homeschooler, she is a treasure trove of wisdom and a great encouragement to the wild and free community. She'll be speaking at our upcoming conference in Franklin, Tennessee this September. But she recently sat down with Jennifer Pepito to talk about filling our own mama souls and trusting the outcome of our homeschooling efforts. Let's listen in. A lot of moms are trying to figure out their homeschool routine, and it's almost a sweet opportunity to just study a little bit. Like one of my friends is putting on a philosophy of, (laughs) it's the Charlotte Mason philosophy of education. Mm. as a book club this summer. And another friend's been doing the Brave Learner book club. So there's all these opportunities in in the summer when we're not quite as bogged down with schoolwork to really further our own education and develop our own homeschool philosophy. So I just wanted you to talk to us a little bit about how you've done that throughout the years. Well, it's kind of funny because um, in the school year, we do continue our education, but it's, it's often overlapping with our children. We're just learning along with them. And that's one thing. And that's one of the key takeaways from homeschooling that it's so doubled up that mom is repairing the ruins of her education at the same time she's educating her children. And I think that's one of the great benefits of homeschooling. But 
come summertime, mom gets a chance to maybe branch off a little bit and do some study in areas where, you know, either educational philosophy so she can be prepared for next year or just, you know, reading a novel or doing something for fun. But at the same time, it's something that, you know, makes her grow as a person. I'm a big believer that novels are great uh, learning opportunities. <laughs> I agree. It's interesting. I've been thinking about all the parenting lessons that I've gotten from literature. <laughs> mm, absolutely. You know, some of the best lessons I've gotten as a parent has come from a book that had nothing to do really with parenting. For instance, The Endurance by Ernest Shackleton. Oh, that is a fantastic, I love that book. That's a wonderful book. What did you learn about parenting from um, that? I just felt like he was such a good leader. And I think sometimes as moms, we're so ambivalent about leadership or feel so disqualified that we end up giving our children the impression that we're, we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> and there's a certain amount of humility that's helpful in homeschooling. But then there's also a certain amount of kind of blustering our way through with a little bit of confidence that helps our children believe that we can do it too. You know, that is beautifully said. I was talking to someone recently and I said, well, I think this is common to all parents, but parenting is a little bit demoralizing. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and, and so you do, you lose your confidence and you're trying to be humble. And so then you fail to have the strength that you're going to need to be a parent to your children. You kind of have to give yourself permission to not know everything, but also be the one in charge. Right. His granddaughter said he didn't take himself too seriously. And I think that's probably one of our biggest faults mm. as homeschool moms is we just take everything too seriously and feel like the world is going to end if we you know, forgot to do a reading lesson that day or, or we're we're sick and bad or whatever. So yeah, I know. I always say moms go to bed with that. Everything they didn't do is on their loop in their head as they right at night. I think not taking ourselves too seriously is really a tremendously good point. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what has been kind of encouraging you lately, or even throughout your homeschooling career. What were some of the novels that really spoke to you and, and helped you develop yourself as a person and as a mother? I'm actually I'm actually teaching a course this summer, and the two novels that I pick were um, by Bess uh, Streeter Aldrich, which were her books "A Lantern in Her Hand" and "A White Bird Flying." "A Lantern in Her Hand." Some people compare it to Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry. A lot of people really love the novel uh, Hannah Coulter. I really love these other novels even better than Wendell Berry. Berry's Hannah Coulter, as far as exploring what it means to be a woman, a woman who is a mother under challenging life circumstances. So those are two novels by the same lady that I love for exploring motherhood. And then I just really like George Eliot, uh, Middlemarch. I like another book club I'm in this summer, my real life book club. We're going to be reading Kristen Lavin's Daughter, which is a very excellent I say excellent, but it's also kind of hard on some people to read it. It's a three book series where that it goes through the life of this woman as she gets married, as she bears children, and as she grows older. And she's a mother of sons. So it touched me deeply, kind of the pathos of being the mother of sons and what that means as you grow older kind of comes into the novel. So it's, it's a little tough for some people. It's a hard read. It's a very thick three volumes, but it's a beautiful story. Well, I, I've read A Lantern in Her Hand, but not in a while. So I'm excited to check out the other 
books that you're talking about here. So tell me some of the lessons that you've found most meaningful from those books, especially in regards to raising sons, which is another thing I wanted to talk to you about. Well, I think what I've learned from those books is what I was talking earlier about parenting being demoralizing is that life can be very difficult, but we have to find the joy and goodness in the midst of the difficulties. We have romantic ideas about life. And sometimes a novel is a good place to see where the romance meets the reality and give us a vision or a picture of what life can look like, even when things don't go your way or when things don't turn out the way you want them. Or maybe they are turning out the way you want them, but you aren't giving them enough time to to fall into place that way. You're panicking because your 12-year-old decides he wants to be an actor or something, you know. <laughs> There's just so many things in life that need time. And as women, we need to give them that time and not to panic. The beginning is not the end is what I always like to say, uh, and especially in mothering. Uh, we don't need to be panicking. We want our children to feel our joy in them and our confidence in them. I, I totally get what you're saying because so often when we are panicking, what we're saying to our children is that you aren't good enough. You're doing something wrong. You know, and really, we're generally unhappy with ourselves and our own performance. Mm -hmm. But the problem is our kids can't separate that. They just recognize that they have failed and they've disappointed us. They, they don't see that it's us that we're disappointed with. I think we do communicate that. I think that's one of those parenting things. If I could do over... I would express more confidence in my children than, you know, fear of the world or fear that things weren't going to turn out all right. I think that would have helped them. Now, I've done better with my youngest son. I, I very rarely um, let him see any panic I feel. He's very self-motivated, very confident, and very uh, thoughtful and empathetic to other people. And his ankles aren't mangled to fear or his mother's neuroses about how he's going to grow up. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that because he's the baby of the family. And I don't know if you can relate, but for me, the baby of the family hasn't gotten the same level of like character training and some of these things that older ones had partly because I'm older and more tired, partly yeah. because <laughs> there's like this element of, oh, it's my baby and they're, they're growing up so fast. And so there's a certain degree of babying I've done that has made him almost a later starter with some areas of responsibility. And yet you had a lot of kids There had to be some of that. How did you manage to develop such a responsible young man? Well, I don't think I did develop it. He has every reason to be a spoiled brat, really, because he was loved and spoiled by everyone. And even his older brother, uh, the one closest in age, both of them, the little guys were very much doted upon so I'm not really sure why he took on his own responsibility. I think part of it was I did step back at an earlier age and I let him see that he could trust me, that I was not going to cling to his whole entire life forever. So I had more of an attitude of I'm working with you. What are your plans since you're going to be an adult? rather than how can I manage you so that your life turns out great? Like I'm Dr. Frankenstein, I always say, and you're Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. And more like he was Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> it was his life to manipulate and trust God for. And he he rose to that occasion very nicely. We, we wanted to make our children free 
we want to free them to make good decisions. We don't want to put stumbling blocks in their way by making them feel like it's our decision. We're the ones making the decision. This is older children, obviously younger children. You go mom, you can make them eat their peanut butter sandwich. You don't even have to cut off the crust. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting how much faith it takes to homeschool and to parent because every child is so different. And, and there can be moments where it looks like they're making bad decisions or like they're not, um, using the tools that we've given them. Mm -hmm. And yet so often what has been put inside will bear fruit. And that's, that's generally how it goes. But then on the other hand, if what we've put inside is a lot of fear and fear of making mistakes and fear of doing it wrong, that might bear fruit too. Yeah, I think so. And the other thing was somebody asked him what he was going to do after he graduated from high school. And he said, well, I'm going to major in English and get a PhD in English, which, you know, I know, and you know that we don't know what four years of college will do to a kid. But I just had to laugh because that to me was, we were really good in that area. And that's what he loves, even though he's probably not looking at it. Like I came from a family that was excelling and and reading, and that's what I want to keep doing. I I took it as a little um, encouragement to myself, (laughs) but I would not tell him that. Right. We'll be back with Cindy in just a minute, but I wanted to share another exciting announcement with you about our content bundles. As you might know, as a Wild and Free member, you get access to a content bundle each month that is packed with resources meant to encourage and equip your mama heart. Starting today, when you subscribe to our content bundles, you can access all of the audio recordings from our recent Wild and Free conference in Stratford-upon-Avon, England. You can hear talks from Lynn Seddon, the author of Exploring Nature with Children, Leah Bowden, modern Miss Mason herself, Katrine Van Duren of Growing Wild Things in Italy, Eve Herman, author of Montessori Resources in France, Esther Meinl of Our Life in the Alps in Germany, our dear friend Sally Clarkson, and our beloved Elsie Udicello. To get the new Dream Bundle, the recordings from Wild and Free Europe, and a free welcome kit and subscription to our monthly magazine in the mail, visit bewildandfree.org slash bundles. Now back to Cindy Rollins. So tell me a little bit about nature journaling with boys, because I have, you know, I've been in Charlotte Mason homeschooling in some degree or for for my whole 22 years of homeschooling. Mm -hmm. And I definitely find that some of my kids, and I don't want to generalize, but it's usually the girls like to sit there and draw beautiful pictures more than my boys. And honestly, like one of my sons, if I say sit down nature journal, he ends up drawing some kind of action scene with dragons. It's not nature journaling at all, in my opinion. So (laughs) tell me a little bit about how do we have to do every single Charlotte Mason-y thing with our kids? Is there some element of being able to recognize their own bent or their own desires? Or are we like Charlotte Mason failures if we don't do everything? Well, no, no. I mean, as far as nature study goes, as a mother of a large family, and you know this too, every everything ends up being something you adapted towards the large family. And I think that is what frustrates some large families when they're going out of Charlotte Mason education, they're looking at all these elements and they really need the freedom to know that they can make adaptations. For me with nature study, and I was like you, I was I had a couple of my kids that I had to constantly say, 
it has to be nature. <laughs> no, uh, they'll draw, they would draw a building or, you know, a gun or, you know, some, some fun thing they wanted to draw. And I'd have to say, no, a nature journal is nature. But what I did in my family was because it was really, really hard for us to get all the apparatus and go outside and do our nature journals outside. I just did it during morning time with field guides. So we have a lot of nature notebooks that left over from their childhoods because we did it a lot because we did it basically every day, every day while I was reading aloud and I picked the book I knew they liked to read at the end of the, our reading time together in morning time, we would read a novel and whenever I got to that point, they would pull out their nature notebooks and we they would get field guides and they would draw what they saw exactly from the nature book they were looking at into their nature notebook. And that still gives them that whole thing of I'm looking at something, I'm seeing it, and I'm imitating it as best I can on the page. Then for their nature study... Then when we went on a nature hike or went outside, we were just free to look and see. Now they were free to bring stuff in and the next day they could, you know, draw what they had brought home. They were, and they were outside a lot in nature. So I kind of fragmented that idea of drawing in nature just because it wasn't going to happen a lot and made it happen a lot by adapting it to my family. Yeah, I think that's brilliant, especially with boys or or any active child. Yeah. Because when you're outside, you want to just be playing outside and not sitting there. And and that's where, you know, bringing something home and then reading aloud or something while you're doing it is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's like torture. Right. I mean, if you take a boy outside, yeah, sit him down, it's like strapping him in and say, sit here and draw. Uh, But when you're inside and reading, they're kind of antsy anyway, and it gives them something to do with their hands. But I, I think the one thing in Charlotte Mason that I hate to say this, but there's a lot of people out there saying a lot of things about Charlotte Mason. And I think we need to concentrate on her principles and us as people making adaptations to them. But the principles are the overriding thing. And then how we work out our own salvation that there's going to be a lot of variety in that. But the only place I think that you can't actually get a Charlotte Mason education without this would be narration. If you don't have your children narrate a little bit somewhere during the day, and I don't mean a lot because ultimately it'd be great if they could narrate everything. But in reality, just getting one narration a day was probably about all that most of us can handle. But it is hard to say you're a Charlotte Mason educator if you're not doing narration. And and that's beautiful that there's so much freedom, really, that you can choose your own living books and and choose nature that you want to study. It doesn't have to be this pre- prescribed list necessarily as no. long as they're living books. Absolutely. I think um, we're very free in that area. We can find the books that our family loves and we can find the nature, what we're interested in, like if you're on the coast or if you're, you know, in different areas of the country, you're going to fall in love with different things. Yeah. And I think part of that is time. I'm reading the the Durrells in Corfu. Oh. It's like my, my family and other animals. Oh, and that, yeah. that was a boy who loved doing nature study. I don't know how much he actually drew the animals, but he definitely was always observing. And I think, you know, part of that is that when there aren't a lot of other options in your life, I mean, that was a time where there weren't video games and shows and things like that. 
I think that's probably a huge key to actually getting our children to engage in the environment. Yeah. And there's a beautiful book about motherhood. (laughs) There's a mother who has that, uh, Charlotte Mason called it the wise letting alone. You know, she was allowing this boy to explore. And that's, I mean, it's kind of sad because, you know, we really aren't free to allow, allow our children to explore it in that way. And we don't live on Corfu. So (laughs) that's another problem, but um, she did a great job of letting him alone. I like to read biographies, but I I like to read biographies of writers. And I've noticed this year, uh, it was Eudora Welty, Annie Dillard. I'm trying to think of somebody else I was reading in their childhood. They had done a lot of meditating out of doors and drawing. And you see that a writer um, is paying attention. And really, that's what we're looking for. We want our children to actually see and pay attention to something. And these writers had learned the art of paying attention through nature and through drawing as children. That's really important, Cindy, that you point that out, because sometimes you can think that these principles like you know, narration or nature study are just some kind of an old fashioned thing. But when you recognize that, oh, no, this is about learning to observe and learning to quiet down and learning to pay attention, and it's going to have applications in many other areas of our life, it can make it more motivating to stay with it. Oh, when, when we think about the art of paying attention, and that's why the Prince Charlotte Mason's principles are so much more important for us to understand than how we work them out. Because once we understand the point of paying attention, uh, the habit, she calls it the habit of attention, then all these other things do, like you're saying, start making sense. And they have a point beyond just, oh, is my child someone who's a good artist or can draw well? Because most of my children, a few of my children drew very well, but most of them are just, you know, mediocre artists. And some are terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But there was more to it. Friends, don't forget to check out our fundraising campaign for the Wild and Free Farm Village. We've still got some amazing giving perks left, including the Content Bundle Collector Package. And your gift will go a long way in helping us complete the vision for the campus of the Farm Village. To check out the perks and make a contribution, visit bewildandfree.org slash farmvillage. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but join us again next week for the Wild and Free Podcast.